You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight, we're looking at the perennial holiday classic canine and company <laughs> and the synopsis of canine and company goes a little bit like this in a village near chipping norton a black mass is being held presided over by a goat-masked high priest and priestess they burn the photo of noted scientist lavinia smith soon noted scientist lavinia smith is conversing with her friend Juno Baker, about how her planned tour of America had to be suddenly moved forward, and now she must leave before her niece, Sarah Jane Smith, journalist, arrives to stay. She'll also be missing the return of her nephew and ward, Brendan, who will be returning home from school for the Christmas holidays. Some of the locals say she's being spirited away to America by witchcraft, all because of some silly letter she wrote to the local paper, The Standard, saying that there were still people practicing witchcraft in the village. Lavinia is partners in a market garden with Bill Pollock, whom she leaves to run the business. Also on the grounds of her manor is George Tracy, the man who actually does all the growing and stuff. Lavinia leaves behind a mysterious crate that she's been keeping for Sarah Jane for years. Sarah Jane arrives a fortnight later to find Lavinia gone, having received no word from her at all. Sarah meets George Tracy, the epitome of the laconic English country genizen. She meets his son, Pete, followed by Brendan, whom she has previously never met, and Bill Pollock, whom she has previously met. None of that detail is important. First order of business, open that crate, which contains canine. Mark III, a present left behind by the doctor in 1978. Brendan, a bit of a propeller head, is entranced by canine's capabilities, but Sarah Jane is more concerned by her missing aunt. She tries various inquiries, but cannot figure out what, if anything, has actually happened to her. She does learn about the controversy that Lavinia stirred up with her letter to the Standard about witchcraft. The locals are really superstitious about that stuff. Sarah is invited to a small gathering at Juno Baker and her husband Howard's home. Although Juno is Lavinia's friend, Pollock lets Sarah Jane know that the Howards own their major competing market garden. While she is there, Brendan is attacked by George Tracy and his son. K-9 defends him, stunning Pete. K-9 pursues George, but fails to catch him. But he does some damage to one of the greenhouses in the pursuit. When Pete comes around, bound up, he tries to warn Brendan that he and Sarah Jane should leave the village immediately. When Brendan follows K-9, Pete escapes. Howard Baker is mysteriously called out of the party for some important business. Soon thereafter, George Tracy is reporting to a mysterious, unseen superior about his failure at the manor and the devil dog sent by Hecate, spitting fire from his nose that pursued him. Next day, Sarah and Brendan meet with Pollock and Tracy at the busted greenhouse. Brendan never got a look at Tracy Sr., so he doesn't recognize him, but he does state unequivocally that he'll recognize the other assailant on sight. Pollock, upon hearing of the attack, suggests Sarah Jane report it to the police, which she already has. 
He also tells her about how poorly the business has been. Freak accidents and acts of God have been playing havoc with their profitability. In a village that believes witchcraft can influence crops, that sure is suspicious. Knowing his son will be identified, Tracy orders his son to kidnap Brendan, or he will face the wrath of Hecate. Pete doesn't want to do it, but that night Brendan is kidnapped, and Sarah Jane's phone lines are cut. Based on Brendan's original description of his assailant, she's pretty sure it's Pete Tracy. She tells the police and demands action. She and K-9 also go to Tracy's cottage, where K-9 stays behind, hidden, to spy on Tracy. Later that night, K-9 overhears Tracy telling the local police sergeant that Hecate is demanding a human sacrifice of Brendan. The police sergeant, obviously one of the coven, protests, We haven't done a human sacrifice since 1891! As a member of the coven and officer of the law, he is clearly conflicted. Sarah Jane, returning to pick up K-9, also sees the sergeant leave. Later, she finds him on a dark country road, dead of an apparent heart attack. A nearby goat startles her, too. The next morning, she tells Pollock, and he takes her word for it. She also visits the bakers and tells them about the witches. They are less accepting of the idea, and even hint that perhaps Sarah is a bit uh, distraught. They suggest bed rest and a visit from the local doctor. Canine assimilates all of Aunt Lavidia's books on witchcraft and works out a search path to check all the likely places the coven might be using. They have to hurry, though. Midnight tonight is the winter solstice, the most powerful day in the witchy calendar. Before they head out, Juno Baker calls and invites Sarah Jane to come for dinner that evening. Sarah Jane declines, but when they hang up, Juno Baker gives the audience a very sinister and suspicious look. Time is running out, and the search so far has been fruitless. They realize that it might also be a chapel, and there's one of those on the manor grounds. They rush back, just in time for K-9 to stun most of the coven, with Sarah Jane incapacitating the others, just in time to save Brendan. As Sarah Jane pulls off the mask of the high priestess, we see it as J- Uh, some woman we've never seen before? She then takes the mask off the high priest to reveal it is how- uh, No, it's Bill Pollock. A few days later, at Christmas dinner at the Baker House, who turned out to be just ordinary folks who were just friendly locals, Aunt Lavinia calls. Everything is fine with her in America. She can't understand why Bill Pollock didn't send Sarah Jane the cable she asked him to send. And with the dulcet tones of K-9 singing, We wish you a Merry Christmas, we roll the end credits. So, K-9 and Company, 1981. What do you think of K-9 and Company? Well... You've got to start with what's this show got in common with Minder, Birds of a Feather, and the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Uh, what does it have in common with Minder, uh, Birds of a Feather, and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Three shows I've never seen. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a show where the actor playing the titular character sings the theme tune. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, um, yes, he, he, yeah, if you want to call it that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can't you can't discuss K9 and Company without getting into the title sequence, can you? <sighs> no, you can't. Um it's kind of bad, isn't it? It's quite astonishing. <laughs> it's um <laughs> yeah. And it's long. Well, given that it's a one-off, I mean, because what they've what they've done with it rather than obviously doctor who having the the howl around which is a kind of an iconic mm. groundbreaking graphical 
experience that's been reinvented so many times, but it it still kind of maintains that kind of that mystical, um, fantastical feel to it. And Canine and Company's gone for the straight montage, but it's a one-off, so they haven't got any real clips to montage. So they filmed it all specially. Yeah, and as you say, it's quite long. So and they use them over and over again. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, they've really, really gone to town on it. The you know <laughs> there are crash zooms and little jump uh, cuts and yeah, sort of they, jump they, zooms or whatever you want to call them. Yeah, yeah. They and they and they have they have the the, the kind of little um, vignettes with Sarah Jane uh, sipping sipping wine and typing at a cafe or whatever it is, or leaning on a dry stone wall reading the guardian, the guardian um, yeah. as you pointed out to me uh, and just sort of generally posing or running in with, that outfit with the car and the dog or running yeah all that all that kind of thing i mean it's just it is just extraordinary and bears really very little relationship to the show yes very little relationship to the show <laughs> it, it's um yeah I have notes on it, but it it's mostly has to do with the fact that a, you know, the music is kind of eh, with canine, <laughs> canine, beep beep, I... and uh, uh, the the fact that they have to show the same clips over and over again. I think I think the limitation was not that they could film Sarah Jane Smith enough to make the credits because it's the, the music is so long that they had to double up on it, and they didn't need that length of time. For this, for these opening credits, but I think the problem is the outfits. They just couldn't rent enough outfits for her to wear, and they thought, well, she'd never be sitting on the stone wall reading the Guardian wearing the same outfit. She'd be sitting in a cafe drinking wine and typing, would she? No. So we can't do two shots of her in the same clothes. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, so you, I mean, obviously, you have you have such a mighty fine song as the as the. <laughs> as the theme music that you couldn't possibly shorten it so exactly um, exactly and and obviously it, it is it is as you mentioned it is performed by john leeson as k9 doing the k9 voice and apparently they brought him in for a day just to record that just the titles I don't, he, I don't think he spent a day recording it but they brought him in specially to do it presumably there to pay him for a day so it, it appears from the the credits of the show that the music is written by or co-written by Ian Levine. Yeah, and I saw that. Fiacre Trench. I don't know Fiacre Trench. I know Ian Levine's name. I didn't think he had anything to do with music, but Ian Levine. He's a music producer. Is he? Yeah. I thought this. I thought Ian Levine. That name reminds me of somebody who writes about Doctor Who. Yeah. Is that he's, the same guy? He's a he, yeah. He he's a. A music producer who made his money through that, but who's or one of whose endearing in, in, enduring passions is Doctor Who, and I'm pretty sure at some point he is credited as being an advisor to uh, to John Nathan Turner at some point during the 80s. See, I always thought he was just a writer who wrote stuff about Doctor Who. I never knew he was a music producer. So I saw that name and I'm like, well, that, okay. That explains why it's so bad. It's just I mean, some he, writer. He, <laughs> he, he, has spent a, he, has, 
he has spent a lot of time and money on Doctor Who related things. So, so in terms of um, retrieving missing episodes, missing or, episodes, yeah, that too, uh, yeah, funding a, a a private recreation of Sharda, um, an animated recreation of Sharda. I think he was involved in Doctor in Distress, mm. but as I understand it, the reason he has the money for these projects is from his his uh, music production work. So this is very much part of the part of the day job. Mm. What about the other the other name, Fiona? Did you say something? Uh, so uh, Fiacra. I'm maybe not pronouncing that Fiacra. right. Not good on uh, Irish pronunciation, but um, I don't know anything about him. But apparently, wrote the score to the Taylor of Panama and uh, arranged the strings for the Boomtown Rats. I don't like Monday. Okay, so a actual, an actual musician. All right, um, they've just perpetrated this crime on us somehow. I'm not sure why, but there it goes. Uh, well, it's certainly, it's certainly, um, it's it's quite interesting in terms of thinking. This is the way we want to set the tone for this, and I guess what we should say for those uninitiated into the world of Canine and Company is that this was a spin-off from Doctor Who. Obviously, Canine's in it. Sarah Jane Smith is in it, and John Nathan Turner. Yeah, it it was the the first ever successful well first ever first <laughs> successful we'll come back to um it was the first ever spin-off from doctor who to actually be produced there you go that, but it didn't successful. make it to series so this was this was done as a pilot episode but no subsequent episodes were were made i think this was produced by uh taking two episodes off of season 19 and using the money for those to to make it in the hope that it would then get commissioned as a as a series in its own right. Mm. So one weird thing while we're still talking a little on the music is music appears to be done by Peter Howell. If I was reading the those incidental credits, music, right? yeah, incidental. It's kind of unusual that a pilot hires two separate music teams, if you will, to do the incidental and the opening titles. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's not because usually they've they you know when they make a pilot they hire somebody who can do the music. So they have them just do all the music for the pilot the for the for that pilot. I would say that's probably 90% of the time happens because it, economically it makes more sense. So it, I'm I'm almost wondering if maybe Ian Levine came up with the music then pitched the idea at John Nathan Turner to make a TV series about it. <laughs> I doubt it. I I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's unusual in itself for there to be a pilot, and That's obviously true. the way that this was British, done yeah. was by taking money from a, an existing budget for another show in order to in order to produce it. So that in itself is unusual. That's true. And, and I'll, all right, I'll hit with the music on it. I'm not really crazy about any of the music in the. John Nathan Turner era of Doctor Who. Quite a big era. It is quite a big era, but it's also quite a somewhat discordant era. And uh but but well, this I, is not I'm, bad. I'm gonna come straight out and say this is this the Peter Howell theme, which is the first 
it's major the best piece part of, music of all from, of it. From the John Nathan Turner era is the best Doctor Who theme. So I wouldn't say it's the best Doctor Who theme, but I would say that it's it's probably of the incidental music from that point forward, it's it's probably the first or second be- best piece. I personally like the Dominic Glynn theme mm. better than the Peter Howell theme, but because it's spookier, but or it's more stereo mm. with the sort of ghostly howlings going on. But but neither of them are a patch on the original. Um, but it, it's the music here in this episode was not quite like the music from Doctor Who of that era. This has sure. a, a feel of being almost like somebody took Peter Howell and Dudley Simpson and ran them through a machine that merged them into one person. <laughs> and this was the result because at times it was very Dudley Simpson and at times it was obviously Peter Howell. <laughs> I, I I don't know how to describe it, but like when it opens up on the black mass, I'm like, wow, they got Dudley Simpsons back for the nope. And then it suddenly starts going into the synthesizers and you go, No, 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 that's Peter Howell. Okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's um I would say it's better than all of the music in the John Nathan Turner era of Doctor Who. <laughs> I, I I'm think not this... saying I'm a fan, but it I think it worked much better than uh, I think the, the thing that stands out about the way in which this is produced, which includes the music, I mean, includes the titles, I guess, as well, but it's the fact that it's not really Doctor Who. I mean, it's not Doctor Who, obviously. It's a spin-off no. to Doctor Who. It's a show in its own right. They're, they're setting it up as such. But one of the notable things about it is that it doesn't have aliens in it. So it doesn't, you know, it, there's there's none of the kind of, running down corridors um shiny monsters wrapped in foil or any of the the kind of things which that kind of music might accompany the mood is very much we're in a a rural english village the the house that lavinia lives in is rather a kind of grand house it it it's very much a sense of being rooted i guess on earth on in the english countryside in it, it has the kind of feel of Sunday night BBC One drama rather than Doctor Who as such. Aside from if we're talking about the music, a tiny little bit, which is unusual, would be unusual in Doctor Who, a tiny little bit of the Doctor Who theme. Yeah, there was a little bit briefly. When the Doctor is mentioned. Well, you know, they're they're trying to they're trying to make a call back to it. Uh, you know what it, it I Everything about this show. Well, we might as well talk about the differences. The, the differences here. Then, to me, watching this, it bears absolutely no visual resemblance to anything done during the John Nathan Turner era either. If I were going to watch or any this, other I, era, I well, say. it does look a bit like Image of the Fendal to me. Uh, so the uh, night footage, some of the the way that. that they bring the darkness in around the the night shots and things they yeah uh, yeah very well done um, and that kind of spooky that spooky atmosphere that, mm-hmm. that fendal has you know i it feels more film than uh-huh. than most john nathan turner era stuff um and it, it's just it just looks better to me um and i think it does a pretty good job of setting the atmosphere 
for the for the show. It 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 really in a way surprises me watching it because it is it feels so much better than the stuff done by John Nathan Turner for Doctor Who in terms of production look in terms of you know whether or not the story is better that's another question but just uh I would never I would never guess that was done by the same I th- I think I to be honest I think the answer to that is very simple which is that the budget for science fiction needs to be bigger and they weren't getting a bigger budget for it and that's what they were always up against. So, and they had two episodes Doctor Who budget for one episode of this, even though it had a lot of location footage. But well, no, I think in fairness, this is this is the same length as the two episodes it it uh, usurped the money from. Yeah, all right, all right. I uh, my I'm thinking modern Who. I'm thinking two episodes means two stories. You're right. This is just they just knocked two two parts off of something. Um, so yeah, uh, eh, it feels like it's, I mean, they had to rent that car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're not cheap in Austin Metro or whatever the hell it was. <laughs> what did you think of the story overall though? I, I have to say that this is a show that I enjoy watching. It's got a good spooky kind of story. It's got it the, it, characters are satisfyingly weird and suspicious and the in the in the intrigue is yeah i i I think it's rather good i kind of wish this had gone to series so do i i think i I like this better than the sarah jane adventures um well i was i've been thinking about that because uh i obviously this is the first of i guess arguably the five tv spin-offs from doctor who four or five depending on what you count mm. but you can certainly say regardless that at least half of them have got canine in so he's a big factor in what makes a doctor who spin-off and when doctor who comes back in the 21st century and straight away it's a you know as soon as it's a smash hit torchwood there's your second spin-off, and then the Sarah Jane Adventures, which is Sarah Jane Smith and K9 again. So it's in many ways easy to make a comparison to this show. Now I think some of the Sarah Jane Smith stuff, um, so Sarah Jane, Sarah Jane Adventures. Sorry, I get mm-hmm. the Big Finish spin-off with Sarah Jane and the TV spin-off with Sarah Jane mixed up. The Sarah Jane Adventures, some of them were really really good but the actual setup was much less satisfying in my view than this setup and i guess that you know partly that's because the sarah jane adventures is a kids show and i guess kids are much more likely to find a giant supercomputer with an irritating voice hiding in the attic much more exciting week after week than i am and okay (laughs) fair enough and this this show does seem to be going out of its way a little bit like Torchwood did in in the early days to prove that it's not a kids show in the sense that there's a lot of drinking in it and you think this wouldn't have this wouldn't have been allowed in Doctor Who and Sarah Jane herself is noticeably more I don't want to say grumpy but (laughs) They, they call her what do they call her prickly 
Yes, she is described as prickly in this, and I, and I think it's fair. And there are obviously occasions when she gets irritated with the Doctor, but there are also occasions in this where you think, well, there was a much more sympathetic side to Sarah Jane in Doctor Who, whereas that, that seems to have been knocked off a bit in this, when she, when she sort of said, well, I'm not here to be your surrogate mum, when Brendan talks about not wanting to go back to school. Oh yeah. For example. Yeah. She's not she's not suffering fools gladly. No, and and I like it, just to be clear. Yeah, she well, I mean she is she's older and she's uh, more assertive in her I'd say righteousness, but in other words, you know, she has more self-confidence. And when you have more self-confidence, you can suffer fools less. Uh all, yeah. but I I I do I did kind of dislike I'm not quite clear it, how- Sorry, I'm not quite clear. Just just when you say she's older, I'm not quite clear how much older she is. That's a unit dating reference, by the way. Ah, yes, I see. This well, is, I mean, this it's is 1981. Very and... Indeed, it's it's referred to as 1981. What The problem is we don't know when the Hand of Fear was. Right. And we know that the canine's been sitting there since 78, which is... We do, but we don't know. We don't when, know. Yeah, I mean, the, the doctor, the doctor could have travels. gone back to before could he dropped. Could have been there since 63, yeah. Yeah. So... Well, she appears older. She's certainly more established as a journalist. It's obviously years since she left the doctor's I think uh, traveling clear. side. I think all of those things we can uh, put uh, as as the passage of time. She's clearly a lot more, I don't know, I say celebrated journalist, but she's obviously a more senior journalist mm-hmm. than she was before. So you know, jaunting around international stories, working for Reuters. Yeah. Yeah. So I I think, you know, she is, she is a different point in her life. She's now at the point where she is the star. And frankly, she is the star of this show. Oh yeah. Canine is relatively and thankfully (laughs) relegated to a nowhere near what Canine could have done in this story. Right. I mean, we know Canine could have followed the 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 psychospore of Brendan and tracked him down on his own. If anybody had bothered to ask him to do that, because we've seen him do it with the doctor in the past. So, well, he could have tried to do it, but he probably have bumped into a ladder and destroyed another greenhouse. Yeah, the whole garden gnome thing was a little. Yeah, um, yeah Sarah, Sarah's a, a, a bit different person, and I like the fact that she's a bit different person here, and I like the fact that K-9 is relegated to it, and Brendan is a bit annoying, but he's not as bad as he could be. Do you think Brendan would have been an ongoing character if it had gone to series? Yes. Ooh. I kind of do. And Lavinia? My question is, would be Aunt Lavinia be off in America the whole time, or always, always not around? See, I could have done without Brendan. Um, well, not, I mean, in this, it, it, he's fine, because... He basically gets kidnapped early on, yeah. and that te- gets him out of the way. But if he were, if he were an ongoing character, I'm not sure that my patience would have held up. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, he—I've definitely seen far worse, including all three of the kids who were on Sarah Jane Adventures. Really? But I think so. Yeah, yeah, I kind of think well, including so. Including Anthony Mahindra. Yeah. I, oh. I, I wasn't. I, I didn't really like the Sarah Jane Adventures. I didn't bother to watch it after the first few episodes ah so you missed all the good ones well i could be that's the problem with leading with your crap um you t- <laughs> well, it's a problem TV with show. taking taking two series to get into it but 
that too, yeah. Not un- uh. not un- uncommon on British TV because they don't tend to axe things just because, well, we'll come back to In this case, in this case, yes. Um, put it in as far as it doesn't connect to the ratings. What did bother me about Brendan, and it wasn't really Brendan, it was the writers. You've got a tri-state logic board and a UART? Oh, oh, that's so horribly dated computer technology that they were rambling on about. And it's just, oh. Holographic I, oh, memory? Oh, well, nuclear that one battery? Wasn't, but nuclear, that stuff. But, you know, when they start off with the other stuff, which was very much in, I'm not saying they don't have a UART in a computer now, but just... Just the way they were putting it, it's like, oh, somebody opened a computer magazine and started oh, yeah. babbling stuff. And I hate it when they do that. See, bugs. Um, you know, <laughs> when they do stuff like that, it's very dated and it's very... I agree. It's dated and that's a problem because canine is... I guess, I guess they ought to have had an inkling of this in 1981 because canine had been around in the mother show for some time and mm. so they must have realized he has some longevity and given that canine has still been around on and off or or continued to be around on and off 40 years later or whatever it it's a problem that the description that brendan gives makes him less advanced to computer than some of the things that we might be now carrying around in our pockets Yes, on our wrists. Yeah, I, there's there's a certain amount of truth to that, and uh, of course, K nine is a, a Gallifreyan recreating technology from what the twenty twenty third twenty fourth century. Mm-hmm. So, I should think he would be a lot more advanced than what Brendan can even postulate about. Which that that yes. that that is part of the, you know, the 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 idea that you you just having mentioned that. Brings up an interesting thought. John Nathan Turner famously came into Doctor Who, and the first things he did were get rid of K9. And not too much longer after that, get rid of the sonic screwdriver. And I think in both instances, those were, it's a crutch for the Doctor that we don't need. So for him to turn around and make a TV show featuring the crutch is a little bit weird so i can kind of see why well, they would no, try to downplay a, his powers the problem the problem well yes yes i mean i think generally speaking the more for any character to be overly powerful is problematic but he's separating out the crutch from the character of the doctor because that's the issue the the canine works standing alone except he's not he's 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 Sarah's crutch in this. I, I don't. That that's the. Well, except that's he, the kind of weird part. Well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's actually quite strange looking at it now, having seen Canine um, and Sarah Jane together so often since then, because in in this their introduction, it's almost like you forget Sarah Jane's never seen a canine before, right? And so she gets him out of the box. And Brendan gets all excited about it. And she almost has no reaction. Yeah. And you think, I I wonder whether... You, I mean, obviously she's worried about Lavinia, but I wonder whether you would be more interested in the possibilities, for example, in finding Lavinia of something that is a gift from the Doctor. Or 
uh, or possibly suspicious of you know what I, I don't I don't know what her trust levels in the doctor might be at, at this point but something that the doctor has left may bring trouble given the doctor himself tends to bring trouble well there is that i mean she seems she seems wistfully happy that the doctor didn't forget her yes looking at yes. the notes no, she, so i mean i, I don't she, think she, she's in the i hate the doctor for dumping me zone no but where i suspicious is wrong wariness i think would be would be a, an understandable reaction to canine whereas that so curiosity is, yeah it, it, it the first thing she did does is more or less race out of the door and then later in the episode she just starts relying on him and there's no development leading up to that kind of way in which she 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 treats him as a girl's best friend in a sense <laughs> yeah um yeah. it doesn't it doesn't get established which it which is a bit odd it does mean i think that she doesn't use him so much as a crutch because she's effectively carrying on as before i.e she's being a bit more self-reliant but she's bringing him along for company i guess and the help that he can provide yeah but it just it just feels like if this is if this is the pilot episode in which they meet and and their relationship is established probably we should have seen them getting their relationship established yeah she you know at times she yeah, she shows no curiosity as to what the capabilities of Canine are. Maybe that's mm-hmm. you know, maybe she's just thinking there's a there's a you know, a PC sitting on wheels. She never takes into consideration the possibility that it could even leave the house. Yeah. Um or <clears throat> nothing of that, and then suddenly she's using him for spying in, in the Tracy house later on. Well yes. Of course I guess once she found out he's got lasers. Um <laughs> Well, once you find out he's got lasers, you might start thinking, well, what else have you got? Because most yeah. PCs, in, certainly in 1981, probably now, true, wouldn't have had lasers. So, Not, not outside well, the other DVD than ones with CD drives, yeah. That, that is a bit awkward in the way that it's, it is structured. So you mentioned, you mentioned the writer, who I guess we ought to mention is Terence Doomwatch Dudley. Yes, Oh, yes, that's where the name came from. I wrote the name down. I'm like, yep, I know that name. Can't think of what he works for. I hope Simon figured it out. Yes. Well, right. he he he, be- he became, I mean, he was the producer on Doomwatch, I think I'm right in saying. Um, and then he wrote a, a, a lot of the episodes towards the end. I think he may have directed them as well. He directed Doctor Who and would go on to write, or perhaps by the time he'd written this, had already written some scripts for episodes of Doctor Who, although they were yet to air, Four to Doomsday being the first, which would have aired fairly soon after this, I guess. Not one of my favourites. But it, but it's in, it's interesting in the sense of, the, you know, thinking about him as a writer on Doomwatch, where I think he did some really good work, the feel of this show, as we've touched on, is quite different to Doctor Who, and in some ways a little closer to Doomwatch in the sense of being more grounded. Although the kind of touchstones that occurred to me were things like Children of the Stones. Kind of, yeah. Maybe five years earlier. Uh, Kolchak even, because it's got that kind of X-Files-y vibe of investigating the supernatural. Let, 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 all right, let's get to that, that question right now. Because I went back through this to, to double-check and... Upon reflection, which which is to credit to the writer, 
I will say this right up the front. Is there actually any supernatural activity in this at all? Because I can't actually... Hmm? How did the sergeant die? The sergeant died because he was upset, he was scared, he was worried, and he saw a goat in the middle of a dark, scary night, and he literally had a heart attack. And there's no ambiguity about that? No, there is. There is ambiguity about that. That's what I'm asking. Is there actually any magic in this? Did he? Because that's a perfectly valid explanation. The, The Lavinia being spirited away... It could just literally be coincidence. Uh, the the yeah. Well, I'm sure it is. The stories that Pollock told about, like the acts of God from the you know just a 13 second hailstorm and wiped out all the crops. And remember this. This is all predicated on the fact that these people are doing magic because that's the way you get the crops to go well. And yeah. you ask yourself, wait a second, if that's what they're doing, how come how come Pollock's business is the one that's suffering from this is it because is he is he causing this for some nefarious purpose to take over the business by driving lavinia out who's obviously the one with all the money or is he is he doing this because he's trying to combat bad luck or is it i I think it's the latter i think it's because if you if yeah if you start to believe in these things then you will rationalize it in whatever way is necessary so i to to me i mean i'm i'm i am quite happy and i like i like the fact watching this that you basically don't get anything there there is nothing alien besides canine and there is nothing there is nothing that is necessarily supernatural in this and it was only going back over it that i thought hang on a minute the sergeant it's not that that you couldn't rationalize that in the way that you did it's just that that is quite a sort of it feels like a bit of a coincidence yeah oh absolutely there's quite a lot of coincidences in it there's no doubt about that it's just that you know coincidences do happen and honestly you know in, in in the defense of my rationalization if it had been any animal except a goat he might not have been scared to death yeah. But if he just like and they showed Sarah Jane being scared by the same goat. Yes. yes. So and it was like, an actual goat. And it was an actual goat, not the high priestess out there on the dark, scary street. And I, you know, and I have been I've lived in the country, um, not quite as overgrown as Britain, but I've, you know, country roads are really, really dark and spooky at night. It doesn't matter how well grounded you are in in the real world, there is a creepiness to them. And so he's already upset. He's already been threatened off with Hecate's wrath if he doesn't do what he has to do. He clearly doesn't yeah. want to do it. He's plunking down this dark, scary screen. <laughs> and, then, and then the goat head of, of his high priestess shows up. He's like, ah! I'm not arguing with the fact that he is scared and justifiably so. It's more the fact that he's frightened to death that is the slight coincidence if that, that is, a... is not the result of some kind of supernatural intervention but i agree well, i like the fact that it doesn't have to be but there, there there was no time for there to be any supernatural intervention either right i mean uh uh tracy talks to him and says oh you've got to do this the only person who knows that wilson sergeant wilson isn't 100 percent on board is tracy and i don't know that tracy has time to go back and get the coven warmed up and 
and and going to to cast spells or whatever. Tracy doesn't seem like the type that can do it himself. So therefore, again, it's kind of just seems like a, a really convenient coincidence. But you know that is that is exactly the sort of thing that starts legends and and mm-hmm. are are crazy coincidences that happen. Which you know, from a skeptical standpoint, you must be forever vigilantly on guard against. Yeah, it, it could be a coincidence. <laughs> Just, <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, I I, I liked that. I, I, I'm uh, on board with it. I like that about this story. There are definitely crimes here for Sarah Jane to uncover. Mm-hmm. And she does. And so, yes. and it, it's driven by superstition, which may or may not have any element of truth behind it. And, uh, I yeah, I... I can't quite figure out what I can't figure out what Pollock's end game is though. I don't know what he was trying to do. Why was he trying to get Lavinia to leave or or be burned or whatever oh, it is they well, were trying I, to do at the beginning? I th- I think that was that was purely because she had been writing these letters. They were they were concerned about exposure. Oh, I guess that's possible. But okay, well, hold on. <laughs> Let's just say they were exposed. They would be exposed as cranks. Well, not in their minds. As far as they, as far as they are concerned, what they, well, there was a reference to having committed some sort of human sacrifice at some in point. Eighteen ninety-one. I don't think that's any of the surviving members of the cult, and even in British law, that's probably no longer a crime. Yes, possibly not. Okay, um, we don't know what we don't know what else they've done, but I think I think the point is that whatever it is, they believe it to be effective. It's 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 possible. Um, obviously, and apart from if... apart from anything else, you know, the the what they want to be able to do is to continue with their rituals and their practices. Because if exposure meant that that was interrupted in any way, then they would feel the wrath of Hecate. <sighs> All right, I guess there's there is that. I. Clearly, they have been doing this for a while, and assuming that it's being directed by Pollock, it certainly hasn't helped him any. Right? It I hasn't. Mean, it doesn't, but it like doesn't I say, be... he could rationalize it on the basis of, well, it would have been a lot worse if he hadn't done it, could or be. anything bad that had happened was a, a punishment for not having been as observant as he should have been. Obviously, there are there are several bits in this episode which are clearly designed to throw suspicion entirely on the. The bakers, yes. Um, the fact that all of these acts of God seem to be benefiting the bakers, <laughs> but we don't actually yeah. know that. We don't know if their business is thriving. We just know they're a competitor. But yeah, they there were a couple of moments, like when uh, Howard has to leave the party, and then basically the next scene we see that them reporting to the unseen high priest. I assume. Or 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 that that really sinister look on Juno's face when she hangs up with the phone with Sarah Jane to no one at all except the empty room that she's in and the audience on TV and you're like yeah they're just they're laying it on with a trowel that we're supposed to sure but it's still she she's concerned that's fair enough the thing the thing that puzzles me that's really only just occurred to me while you were talking about what Pollock's what Pollock's motivation was, which is less puzzling to me, is what was Tobias's motivation in actually publishing Lavinia's letter? <laughs> well, that's a good question, too. He said it amused him. 
Um, he that did. Obviously, but he said that to Sarah Jane. Whereas, yeah, that 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 probably didn't go down well with his fellow coven members. Yeah, why hasn't Although he been maybe, killed on maybe, a dark, lonely road by a goat? Yes, I mean, maybe he did think it was amusing and harmless, and they wouldn't be bothered by it. I, d- I don't. I know, wonder if it, it's that the seems a bit stranger. I wonder if it's the other people. So in other words, it's not the coven that were responding and upset about this. It was other suspicious or other superstitious people in the area. And suddenly it's causing so much interest about the topic that they fear exposure. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's not, it wasn't all them writing a no, 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 there's no witches. No, it's. <laughs> Like it, it was, it was everyone else writing and saying, "Yeah, there are. They're you know, they, they ate my goat or whatever, and <laughs> they turned me into a newt." Uh, so that part's a little, it, you know, it's just it, everything is done in such a way that it's supposed to look like the bakers. Everything in this story, and when you suddenly find out it is not the bakers, ooh, they threw me a twist. Suddenly. It does kind of make you go back and go, well, wait, now what's the motivation for all this? I'm, I've lost. <laughs> but I guess there's a good argument that says uh, belief in witchcraft is not rational. Uh, and therefore, why do they need to have a rational plan? <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I think, I, think that's a, I think that's quite reasonable. These are not the most Vulcan of people we know. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 it and it is you know that is set up a, a a number of times with Pollock dismissing science or dis you know when Brendan starts um, yeah making various horticultural suggestions and Pollock dismisses science as being you know irrelevant or unimportant in comparison to experience and the and the whole point about Lavinia who is very clearly outside of all of this is that. She is very much focused on evidence and science. So there's definitely a theme of that running through it. Yeah. I'm going to throw one out before I forget it. In the in the red herring category or in the, the nice bit of ambiguity category, phone lines are cut at Sarah Jane's place. Pollock says, I'll report your out phone for you. Soon thereafter... Juno says, oh, Howard will see about getting your phone line. He's got contacts fixed. Phone line is only fixed when Juno calls, right? That's the first call she receives on the phone, which she does not receive to have any surprise that the phone is working again. But you could, you could look at that and go, oh, see, when she needs to use the phone, it's magically working again. There's... There's that, but yeah, you know, we don't know who got her phone fixed. It's obviously it's actually Howard who got her phone yes. fixed. Yes, not Pollock who'd put in the put in the call. Although I'm kind of surprised the phone company didn't stop in and say, "By the way, somebody snipped the wires out here." <laughs> That's sort of yes. the thing I, I think you'd tell the homeowner uh, when you're. At, I don't know how the phone company out there works, but I, they would definitely do that here because then they would say, "And we're not going to fix that because." That's past the demark point. You're, <laughs> you you don't get any you don't get any fix unless you want to pay. Uh, but then welcome to America. What else? Oh, I have my question I put to you beforehand, but now I hope you have an explanation. When I have watched 
Canine and Company, or I have seen things about Canine and Company in the past, there is a common refrain that pops up. And that refrain during those opening credits is when you see Sarah Jane sitting there reading The Guardian, British people will say things like, well, of course, Sarah Jane would be reading The Guardian. And I don't know what what that, I mean, as opposed to someone who reads The Times or someone who reads The, the Sun, or so, what, yeah. is the, what is The Guardian's place in the the strato of people who read papers. What does well, that the make, Sarah Jane? The, the, the Guardian is for the left-leaning, middle-class, sandal-wearing, muesli-munching, tie-dyed, hippie um, sector of society. Okay. The, essentially, the do-gooders, which is, you know, where Sarah Jane fits in. I mean, I don't know, yep. I don't know who she writes for, and presumably she writes for whoever pays her, but there's definitely a a sense in which do, do, Doctor Who being a bit right on um, with mm. you know its various communist uh, writer, communist and vegetarian writers over the years fits in with that kind of guardianista feel. Whereas, say something like the Sun is all the the idea. It's much more plain speaking. Tell it like it is. People who like tits mixed with their news coverage and who call a spade a spade even when, the, I mean, that's somewhat tautological and doesn't actually account for the more than likely possibility they're actually using it as a racial, racial epithet. Yeah. Um, so, there, well, yes, the, there is the definitely... The Times would be the Tories. Uh, yes, it it might. I mean, Lavinia might be a, a Times reader, I would think. Um, it's It's quite, traditionally at least, it's quite... A sort of establishment, um, well, well-respected, authoritative newspaper, whereas the Guardian is a little bit more fun. Dare I say it? If you can consider <laughs> all that do-gooding as being fun, fun. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, that fits then. Yeah, that's the. That... I I I couldn't help when you drew my attention to the guardian i couldn't help actually trying to figure out from what you can see in the title sequence and bearing in mind this is the title sequence it's it's strange but the headline in there is about the uh, glc facing facing fairs chaos after a a, a court ruling I, uh, glc this 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 won't necessarily mean anything to british listeners either so Okay, Not just fair. service for the American listeners. Greater London Council, which was abolished um, a little later on in the decade. And it had a fares fair initiative, which was all about having cheap fares on the tube. And this was brought to court. And the interesting thing about it was I, I became curious because I thought, oh, what date is on that newspaper? And the GLC lost lost their battle in the House of Lords on the 17th of December. And this episode is specifically set on the 18th of December onwards. How could they know that? Well, you see, this is the thing. I mean, we don't know that it we don't know when the title sequence was filmed. But given that it was broadcast, I think, on the 28th of December. Yeah. It couldn't have been that late. It couldn't have been filmed on the 18th of December. And it 
then transpires that there was actually uh, the 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 reason the GLC were appealing in the House of Lords was because there was a uh, court decision in the Court of Appeal which found against the GLC on the 10th of November. And so probably that's what the headline is about. But for a minute there, I was thinking, wow, time travel. they are really... I mean, that just, that just kind of works out well. And obviously it doesn't actually matter at all because, A, no one's going to read what's on the Guardian headline in the title sequence, given that I didn't even notice she was reading the Guardian. And B, anyway, it's the title sequence. It doesn't necessarily have to take place at the same time as in the episode. Right, yeah. I mean, I think you know, the only reason you could do that is because of the fact that this is now available on Blu-ray mm. in the, uh, what is it, season 19? Season 18. 18 box set. Indeed. In case anyone wants to watch it. It was previously available on the DVDs with um, uh, the one with the bug. The one with K-9. <clears throat> the Invisible Enemy. There we go. The introduction oh. of K-9. So that was, a, that was a bonus in the Invisible Enemy DVDs was canine and company but not not in blu-ray quality so yeah which you can read the titles of the guardians headline <laughs> things that they weren't expecting you to someday be able to see on tv um i don't know that i have anything else uh, i i i have very little else i mean i i i thought the cast were very good and in particular i would go on about how much i like colin jevons who played tracy in this but i think i probably covered all of that when we talked about doom watch by the pricking of my thumbs so i'll i'll let that pass as red i did Fair. just think i mean just obviously we've discussed the episode itself and there was the plan that this would then lead to a a series and it did strike me that there are similarities to the 1996 doctor who movie in the sense that there's another thing that is regarded as being a bit of an oddity in some senses, which I still find really, really enjoyable to rewatch, which did extremely well in the ratings on British TV, at least, mm -hmm. and yet which didn't go to series. Because it so didn't do there well we are. American ratings, yeah. Yes, yes. And in that, so in that case, it was, it was about the, the, you know, the, the setup and the fact that they needed the external money for it. I think in this case, it was simply about the whims of the incoming BBC One controller who didn't feel that it fitted with his plans, despite the fact that it had got better ratings than every episode of season 18 of, of Doctor Who that had been broadcast during the year. Yeah, well, it was at the Christmas time. Everybody knows Doctor Who's or Doctor Who spin-offs that come out at Christmas time are always the best. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I got through that with a straight face. Um, <coughs> isn't that isn't that um, isn't that when the pilot for the Sarah Jane Adventures, which incidentally now I think about it, that also had a pilot. Don't remember. I think it was. I think it was Christmas. I I wouldn't swear to it. I haven't checked. Yeah, I I. I don't remember enough about it. I I only remember it being a short series and seeing the first few, possibly even the first series, before eh, <laughs> giving up on it. But well, it 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 ran. I mean, in a way, if you can consider it to be the spiritual successor to Canine and Company, despite the many differences that we've talked about, 
it ran to five series and was only cancelled because of the the sad passing of Liz Sladen. So I think that indicates that the concept definitely had legs and or wheels. Our wheels, indeed. And yeah, if, if we had had uh, more far-sighted TV executives in 1981-82, what might have been? It could have been the second longest-running science fiction TV series of all time. Indeed. It would have survived the cancellation in the wilderness years and just kept on going. No. <laughs> all right. Well, with that then, I'll say thank you, Simon, for joining me. It's a pleasure, as always. And listeners, I hope you have enjoyed this special one-off episode of Fusion Patrol, and I hope you'll join us all again next time on, on Fusion Patrol. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. There are over 500 previous episodes available at FusionPatrol.com. Come join the conversation on Twitter, our website, or Facebook. Find out how you can become a supporter at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Supporters get early access to all regular episodes, bonus episodes, and more. There's even an optional podcast series where we're looking at the classic TV series Babylon 5. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. Next time on Fusion Patrol, join us as we take a look at two more episodes of Ultra Q. Next, it's Terror of the Sweet Honey and Baron Spider. Come join the conversation.